light. Will you pray with me? Lord God, um, many of us come into this room, even right now, and there are things that are wrestling for our attention and our mind and our heart. There's burdens that we carry. There's concerns of the world that surround us. And Lord God, in this moment, we just give our heart to you and we pray that you would have your way in our heart, that you would speak to our heart, that you would direct our mind and thoughts towards you. God, we just give you an, attent- uh, give you an opportunity here, God, to, to lead us and uh, help us, God, to become the people that uh, you've designed us to be. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark, and today is a great day to be here at Twin Cities Church. Uh, we are starting a series, It's a Guy Thing. And so uh, in order to just kind of set the mood a little bit to get us in a manly mood, we prepared a little video for you. So enjoy. Barbells, dumbbells, the bench, the treadmill. Well, that's it. For a guy, that's the only list of authorized gym equipment that you can use. No giant rubber bouncy balls or thigh masters. And above all else, no classes. You're not sure what happens in these so-called classes, but they seem to include lots of spandex, lots of pink, and lots of women writhing on the floor like they're auditioning for a Christina Aguilera video. You view these classes with deep suspicion. You're scared to even look into the windows. The one thing that you do know is that each class has only one guy, and it's not you. To help you abide by this rule, avoid classes like kickboxing. Unless they teach you how to kick down a door, stay clear. Or Pilates. Bets are you don't even know what Pilates are. And finally, yoga. Keep your pride. You don't want to take part in an activity where the women will always be better than you are. To the opposite sex, this may seem foolish and hard to understand. But it's a guy thing. All right. Yeah. (laughs) That's some real manly stuff there, right? You know, um... My own personal journey into manhood, if I were to be honest with you, is a little rocky. Um, I kind of grew up as this skinny beanpole type of kid, and I never played football. You know, I never got in a fist fight. Um, I never shot a bear, you know, something manly like that. Matter of fact, to this day, I still have not changed the oil in my own car. And so, I know, right? I just need to hang my head in shame and just leave the stage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can help me out. <laughs> there are these man jobs, you know, that, that, that a man has at the house. And uh, so, you know, for instance, when my wife and I, when my wife Tara and I first got our first house, you know, one of the first things I had to do is I had to put in a lawn. So I had this pickaxe and I was digging ditches to lay some PVC pipe and uh, I cut the cable line <laughs> two times, two times. <laughs> And uh, I was putting up Christmas lights, you know, that first Christmas season. And I remember, you know, hammering up some stuff. And I left the hammer at the top of the ladder. And I went to move the ladder and the hammer came down and clocked me in the face. It was terrible. Ring. Then uh, up in the attic, we needed some extra storage space. And so I'm up there. I'm looking around. You know, gosh, we could use this whole area if this pipe wasn't in the way. (laughs) So I grabbed a hacksaw and started sawing on this pipe. It was a gas line. Yeah. Almost blew our house to smithereens right there. (laughs) 
On top of all of this, you know, I'm a dad who's raised two daughters, and uh, you know what little girls like to do, right? They like to play dress up. Yeah, take a look at that right there. You can take the man card and just rip it up. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> In his book, Wild at Heart, <laughs> author John Eldridge, he says this. He says, even if he can't put his finger on it, every man asks himself the question, am I really a man? Have I got what it takes? And uh, I've asked myself that question, and I've come up with this conclusion. You know, it's not just what a guy does that makes him a man, but even more importantly, it's who he is. And when a guy can figure out exactly who he really is, and that begins to determine what he does, then that man has the potential for greatness. And I love what Henry Nouwen says about greatness. He says that greatness has nothing to do with being greater than someone else, but has everything to do with being as great as you can be. And every man has the potential, every man has the potential to do great work, to be a great husband, to be a great father, to overcome great obstacles, and also to stand strong spiritually. The potential for, for greatness, actually, it lies within every man and every woman. You see, but it's what each of us does with that potential that really matters. And so, guys, I would ask you this. You know, what are you doing with the potential, the God-given potential that he's given you to be a great man? You know, we're going to look at uh, this series, It's a Guy Thing, and we're going to focus on a man named Samson. And Samson was a judge who reigned in Israel. He was someone... Uh, assigned by God to deliver them. And Samson had incredible potential. God set him up to do amazing things. And see, Samson's story, we find it in the book of Judges. And Judges is right after a book called Joshua. And so what happens in Joshua is that Joshua brings all of the nation of Israel into the promised land. They finally get there after all that they'd been through. And they make this covenant with God at the end of the book of Joshua. We will serve the Lord all of our lives. And they did that. And in the opening of Judges, though, it says this. That after Joshua died, and after that whole generation that followed Joshua died, that there arose a new generation. And this new generation didn't know God, and they weren't interested in serving him. That's how the book of Judges opens. And it says this. It kind of paints the picture of the entire period of the Judges. Judges 17, 6 says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Hmm. And the book of Judges paints the story of a 300-year history of what I will call Israel's cycle of sin. And this is how it went. They started out and they would serve God and they were devoted to God. And then they began to chase after sin and idolatry. And then, just as it always does, sin enslaved them, and they became captive to that sin. And then they would cry out to God for a deliverer, and God would appoint and send a judge that would help deliver them. They were freed, and then they'd serve God, then they'd fall away, and then they'd cry out, and God would send a judge. The whole book of Judges, 300 years of this same cycle, around and around, over and over again. Now, the Hebrew word for the word judge is actually more accurately translated deliverer. 
Matter of fact, if you can pull out your message notes, you'll see that the first point there is that judge equals deliverer. Deliverer. Now, um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word judge, one of the first things that I picture, you know, is I picture this great big desk and someone's, you know, sitting there with a big old robe and a gavel, you know, like Judge Judy, you know. That's a $300 fine. Get out of my courtroom. (laughs) Sending them out. But actually, in this context, a judge was actually someone that was more like a military commander. They were someone that God had chosen and that had empowered them to be able to deliver the Israelites from um, conflict and oppression and be able to protect them. And Samson was the one that God had chosen to be their deliverer. Samson had this potential for greatness. And yet we're going to see through this series that Samson squandered his potential by relying on his own strength instead of on the power and strength that God wanted to supply him. And it wasn't until the great and mighty Samson finally came to the very end of himself when he was at his weakest point that God met him right there in his grace and allowed him to fulfill his true purpose. And so this morning, as I said, we're going to focus on that potential that God gives us so that we can lean into it and begin to develop a life that really matters and counts, just not for now, but also into eternity. So here's our first point as we get started, that the potential of every man and every woman is this, that God gives you a great calling. God gives you a great calling. So what's a calling? Uh, The dictionary defines calling as, you know, this inner urge or strong impulse, often believed to be divinely inspired. You know, I kind of picture it as, you know, the way that we're uniquely made in our personality and then our God-given purpose and we put it together and it's our calling. And Samson was given a calling by God. It tells us that Samson was called to be a Nazarite, a Nazarite. So let's take a look at this. If you have... children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. So again, we see that Israel has turned its back on God, running away, rejecting God. Then they cry out to the Lord for help. And God sends a deliverer. In fact, he finds a couple that couldn't have children, and he he tells this couple, you're going to have a son, and raise him as a Nazarite. So what's a Nazarite? (laughs) What is that anyway? Well, the Nazarene vow was something that we find in the book of Numbers chapter 6. And Moses told the people of God that to take a Nazarite vow was to prepare yourself for a separated service. You were separating yourself from all other things in order to dedicate yourself to God to serve him. And it usually was something that people did for a temporary piece, um, 
a temporary period of time. They would dedicate themselves to a Nazarite vow to accomplish a certain thing for God. And so the Nazarite vow includes three key things here. We'll see this. It says, one, that there was no, they wouldn't partake of any wine or alcohol, which means that they would cut them off from all festivals and other types of things that they'd be involved in. And again, the idea is that they would be sober-minded and separated from vanity and luxury of these parties and also excess. Again, separating themselves for a special service to the Lord. Second, that they wouldn't cut their hair. That there would be no razor that would cut their hair. And again, the idea is a visible sign that God was their strength. They believed that the, the head, the hair was their crown of glory, was the sign of their strength. By having this long hair, they would stand out as saying that God is my strength. And then the third thing, that they weren't to touch a dead body. You say, well, what was that all about? Well, in the Jewish Levitical law, one of the laws in order that God would protect them from diseases, he told them they weren't supposed to touch a dead body, um, that if they did, they were separated from being able to serve in religious service, and they were removed from that. And so by not touching a dead body, they were available at any time for God's use. And see, God called Samson to a whole life of living under this special sanction, this special vow, a Nazarite vow, to be dedicated to God. And man, I think there's something we can learn from this. I think there's some principles in this Nazarite vow that are important for us to keep in mind. That one, strong men are faithful even in the little things. Faithful even in the little things. Second, that they know their weakness, aware of it, and also know the true source of their strength. And that third, that strong men keep their lives pure and are available for God's use. Now, we may not um, be Nazarites, you know, that grow our hair all along and look beautiful like an 80s rock star, you know. (laughs) But we do have a very special calling on our life, that God has given us a calling, and that's this, that you are called to be saints. You are called to be saints. The idea behind the word saint is that someone that's set apart for God and his kingdom and his service. You know, um, when... We hear the word saints, you know, we kind of tend to think of these super Christians, you know, or statues in a, in a big cathedral or something like that. Or maybe when we hear the word saints, we think of a really bad football team. Um, <laughs> uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 said this, and he gave them apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up the body of Christ. He talks about saints being ordinary Christians, people that build up the body of Christ. Saints are the body of Christ. You see, all Christians are considered to be saints because of their connection to Jesus Christ. They're called to increasingly allow their daily life to more closely demonstrate and, and witness their connection that they have with Jesus. That's our calling. And that even before you were ever born, that God knew you and set you apart for this incredible identity and calling. That you have a special, very special, unique calling from God. That you are no mistake. That you are not insignificant. That you are important to God's plan. Ephesians 2.10 underlines this. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. I love that. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. God has special plans and special things that he's appointed for us. So, men, do you know that you have been set apart to do great things for God? 
Do you realize that? I honestly think that too many of us just sort of waste our lives, you know, settling for so much less than what we are truly capable of. There was this um, incredibly wealthy man, and he wanted to buy his mother the best birthday present he could ever think of. So he did some research, and he found that there was, uh, he'd heard of a bird that someone had, and it was amazing. Um, this bird had a 4,000-word vocabulary. It could speak several languages. It even sang opera, you know, three different opera songs. And so he contacted this person, found the bird, bought it for $50,000, and then he sent it to his mother. And then he wanted to check in with her to make sure that she got the bird. And he called her up. He said, so what did you think of the bird? He asked her. And she replied, it was delicious. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> there was so much more of that bird than she even began to realize. She had no idea. It was extraordinary. And she ate it for lunch. You know? I mean, that's what we call lost potential right there. <laughs> So what is the application of this? You know, if you want your life to count, then direct your life to your calling. Make your calling your true north, that everything aligns with what you are called to be. Your time, your energy, your resources, your purpose, your life, your thoughts, your actions, geared toward your calling to be separated out. To God's service. All right. Second, God also gives us a great mission, a great mission. So what is a mission? Uh, well, the dictionary, again, it describes a mission as a special assignment that's given to a person or a group of people. And I like that definition, you know, it's a, a special assignment, a purpose, a charge. And God gave Samson a special mission. Samson was given the mission of delivering Israel from the Philistines. It was a special mission given to him by God. Israel was being harassed and overthrown by the Philistines. Matter of fact, you might recognize the name Philistines if you remember the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. They were people that, that harassed and, 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 and tortured them and dominated them and invaded them. And God actually allowed this to happen. You see, there's an important principle here that we have to recognize, and that's the fact that Israel had, had rebelled and rejected God and, and pushed him out of their life. And God sent his prophets to call them back, to bring them back to him, and, and, and reached out and called out and cried out, come back to me. But as they continued to just push him away, at some point in time, God gave Israel exactly what she asked for. And he let her run into sin. And as we know, sin kills and sin destroys. And that's what happened. And Israel became captive in sin. And then cried out for a deliverer. Cried out for someone to help them. And God sent this deliverer, this man Samson. Samson would be their deliverer. Judges 13.5 says, He will begin the deliverance of Israel. Samson would be an extension of God's love and his compassion and grace to them. It's this incredible high calling that he was given, this mission. And, and some of you, you know, some of us, uh, many of us have recognized that cycle of sin. And at some point, you know, that we were running from God, that we pushed him out of our life, that we wanted to be our own God. 
and we distanced ourselves, and we heard his calling out to us, and we still continued to turn away. And then at some point in time, we hit the end of that road. Some of you remember that really difficult place. And then we called out to God for help, and God sent a deliverer, the ultimate deliverer. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from sin and from bondage. And in that moment when we received that deliverer and his deliverance for us, we became a part of God's family. His sons and daughters. And at that moment, we also received his mission, God's mission. And see, you've been given the mission of sharing Jesus with others. It's God's incredible work, the most important mission of anything that we can do in the whole world because it's an eternal mission. It's in a mission with eternal consequences. And there's no higher calling or privilege that the God of the universe has put his work into your hands. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 tells us, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. You know, we have this key that God's given us to set captives free, to give hope to the hopeless and begin to bring people back to God. You know, um, for a lot of us, and I would include myself in this, there's nothing that, that seems like it would take more courage than to be able just to share Christ with others. You know, we'd rather wrestle like a two-ton gorilla than share our faith with our neighbor. It's scary. It's hard. We don't think we have the right words. We don't have the answers to their questions. And yet when it really boils down to it, it's are we willing to make the investment? I want to show you a picture. Do you think this young kid here is worth investing in? <laughs> you might recognize him. This is a young Billy Graham. And in his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy wrote this about the man who led him to Christ. Billy um, had been taken, you know, resistantly to church by his parents. He was in a place where he was interested in going. And one day he found himself up at the front, and he says this in his book. As I stood in front of the platform, a tailor named J.V. Privet who was a friend of our family with a deep love for souls, he stepped up beside me, weeping. And putting his arm around me, he urged me to make my decision. And at that time, in his heavy European accent, he exclaimed and explained God's plan for my salvation in a very simple way. That explanation was addressed to my own understanding. It did not necessarily answer every question I had at the moment, but it set forth the simple facts that I needed to know in order to become God's child. And he prayed for me. And he guided me and showed me how to pray. And that was the moment that I made my real commitment to Jesus Christ. How would you like to be the guy that led Billy Graham to Jesus Christ? I mean, how amazing would that be? You know, the guy that led me to Christ is a very simple, soft-spoken, humble man named Preston Smith. And I am so grateful that J.D. Previtt and my friend Preston Smith took their mission seriously. I can't tell you how grateful that I am. And so how do you make 
your mission happen? How do you put it into action? Well, it's to make the message of your life your mission. Make the message of your life your mission. The message of your life, it's what you're known for. And we all have to ask ourselves, is, is the mission that God's given me what I'm known for? I mean, if not, then what are you known for? You know, when people think of you, what is the message that you send? It's a great challenge. <laughs> type of guy, you know, strong. We think of his physical strength, his just strong, big dude. And uh, Samson was incredibly strong, but he was also very, very weak, very weak. He's a great example of someone who focused his strength in the wrong place. The source of his strength was misguided. You know, he tended to rely on his own strength instead of the strength that God gave him. Samson was given incredible strength by God. Samson was given spiritual strength. Spiritual strength. And physical strength is no match for spiritual strength and the strength of character. You know, God blessed Samson with a full dose of his spirit. And so that he was perfectly equipped to do the job that God called him to do. We see this in Judges 13, 24, and 25. It says this. When her son was born, she named him Samson. And the Lord blessed him as he grew up, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived in Mananin Dan. Samson's name, it means shining sun. Samson, shining sun. And it's actually a perfect description of, of what he was called to do. You see, God wanted Israel to be, he wanted Samson to lead Israel to become this shining light to other nations. You know, representative of a people who were loved by God. And who lived for him. That was his calling. And in the Hebrew culture, they chose names for their children that were reflective of their character and their purpose. You know, a a person's character and reputation was so important in that culture. It really defined them. Today, maybe not so much. You know, (laughs) just being honest with you. Sometimes we scratch our heads wondering why people call their kids what they do. Um, There's actually a book out, you know, of some of the outrageous things that people have called their kids. Um, for example, would you ever name your child Seymour Butts? <laughs> I mean, does the kid even have a chance in life? I don't know. There's a young lady, and they called her Adeline Dingledine. Adeline Dingledine. <laughs> Growing up, I knew a kid. His name was Just In Case. That was kind of clever, I think. And uh, there were some boys that I knew from high school, and their family, they were the Woodmans. So get this. The dad's name, his name was Woody Woodman. The mom's name was Peg Woodman, and they named their children, you ready? Leaf, Branch, and Twiggy Woodman, all right? Guess what they named their dog? Bark. Yeah, perfect, perfect. (laughs) 
All right. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. (laughs) To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. This verse is such a great reminder, such a great reminder that the true strength of a man is in his character. And building great character builds a great name. And a great name actually does matter in life. It does. A great name opens doors. It opens opportunities. A great name sets you on a proper path. And the opposite is also true. That to tarnish your reputation, to tarnish your name, closes doors and squanders your potential in life. It's not something we hear a lot about in our society these days, but it doesn't negate the truth of what Scripture says, that your name is more valuable than riches, better than gold. Your integrity is important. And a bad name shuts down your potential to be all that God has called you to be. The true strength of a man is his character. And so don't be tempted to let your ideas and thoughts of manhood be shaped by what culture and Hollywood tell you what they are. You know, um, I found this great quote from a book that's written by a Christian author, actually. It's called Mansfield Book of Manly Men. Right there. Great mustachio. He says this. By words like manly and manhood, I don't mean the kind of behavior that we see in the fake masculinity that surrounds us today. There's nothing manly about a guy drowning drowning in booze until he throws up on the street. There's nothing manly about cruising for women like some predatory beast and then devouring them for pleasure before casting them aside. There is nothing manly about making a child but then running like a coward before that child is born. There's nothing manly about dominating a woman or treating her like a servant or leaving her with burdens that aren't rightly hers. No, I'm talking about the kind of manhood that makes a family whole, a woman safe, a child confident, and a community strong. Men, God has given you an incredible gift to help shape your character and make you strong in spirit. It is a powerful gift. It's the gift. You have been given the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our greatest strength is our character, and it's the Holy Spirit that forms this character in us. The character of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the character of Jesus Christ. And you can have a body like the Incredible Hulk. I mean, you can be ripped. (laughs) But ultimately, without character, that strong body will be your ultimate weakness. Just ask a guy like Samson. Acts 1.8 says this, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is our source of power to live a God-honoring life. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to transform us and help us, direct us, and lead us in God's ways. But see, being strong in the Spirit is sort of counterintuitive. You know, when we think, when we see even the words, you know, be strong, you know, the first thing we want to do is just take control. You know, let's just grab hold of this situation around, be strong. But actually, to be strong in the Spirit is exactly the opposite. 
It's letting go of our strength and control and allowing God to be strong and to lean on his ways. And in order to do that, we actually have to train. You need to train yourself to depend on God's strength. It's like going to the gym for a workout. We have to train. It's, it's not intuitive. It's not in our nature. We need to be intentional about allowing God to take the lead and to submit to the power of the Spirit. Spiritual potential, it just doesn't come as a, a, naturally to us. Potential doesn't guarantee success. We have to train to live in the power of God's Spirit. And if you've received Jesus Christ, the good news is that His Spirit is alive in you today, and it is strong and powerful. And the question is, are you willing to allow yourself to be filled and guided by the Spirit of God? Because that is the key to living up to your potential. You know, as we finish and look through this and, and walk through this series together, you'll see that Samson had amazing potential. God set him up to do incredible things. And yet we'll find that Samson really did not live up to his potential at all. And I think that we're going to recognize that there's a little bit of Samson in all of us. And honestly, what my prayer for, for all of us is that, one, we're going to learn from Samson's mistakes and hopefully have the wisdom not to repeat them. But I think even more than that, even better yet, is that we are going to witness the incredible and amazing grace of God in Samson's life. And see how that grace can turn out to be our hope as well. Let's pray. God, I, um, I thank you so much um, for your word and for the hope that comes from a new start. And Lord, um, some of us recognize that we're caught in that cycle of sin that we talked about earlier. And some of us are, we can feel our heart kind of, we're in that beginning stage where we're starting to run the other direction. We've allowed things to come into our life that are distancing us from you. And God, I pray that you'd give us the strength to return back to you and not have to go through the pain of making another bad decision. Some of us, Lord, are further down that road and, and we've heard you calling to us, but we've ignored that voice and we've come to the end and we're desperate, we're seeking. And the reason we're here today is to cry out and say, God, is there any hope for me? Could you reach down and save me? And God, I pray that you'd do that, that you would answer that cry and that you would, you'd send the deliverer, Jesus Christ, and you'd help that person just to reach out a hand and say, yes, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I want to be delivered from sin. I need you to help me. I want to live for you. Lord, we need you more desperately than ever. I pray for every man and woman in this room to find strength in your spirit to walk a God-honoring life, and God, to live lives that are like shining lights in a very dark world. And I thank you, God, and, and we depend on you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.